Jeremy started last week a, a, a two-part series. It's called the Going Up series. He talked about the transfiguration, and um, I'm going to talk today about Jesus' ascension in the second part of that two-part series. Normally, I would start with an illustration, maybe from a comic or a personal story, or um, you know, because illustrations seem to make difficult concepts come to life and and be an illustration for a, a tough principle. But that's really what the ascension is, and there really isn't a, an illustration for it because it is in and of itself an illustration of easy, everything Jesus said up to that point about what was going on at that time and eternity. And so I'm going to let the ascension speak for itself this morning, which is very unusual for me to let somebody else speak for me. But Jesus' ascension, and, and as Jeremy shared this, uh, made this point with the, with the whole series, is that it makes the unapproachable approachable. And it allows us to come into God's presence. The, the ascension makes it real and possible, and it illustrates for us how to do it. Um, that's why we, Jeremy and I were led to do this series. You know, if you think about the ascension, we don't, we don't talk about it much. We don't celebrate it, actually. Um, we celebrate the incarnation at Christmas. We celebrate the crucifixion and resurrection at Easter. But when it comes to the, and we certainly in the last, you know, are focusing on the end times a lot these days, we focus on all those things which are major biblical principles, but the ascension doesn't get a lot of press. You know, it happened 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, after his resurrection, he was taken up, is that how the Bible, uh, how the book of Luke puts it uh, simply. It's 40 days after the resurrection, so it falls on a Thursday on our calendar, well, we don't have to write sermons for it. We don't have a church service for it. They, Hallmark doesn't sell cards for it. So maybe it gets breezed over a little bit. But the ascension, if you understand what went on up to that and what, it was, what, what the point of it was, it's amazing. It's unexplainable and it's mysterious. And so I want to share it with you today and hopefully bring some of it to light. It's going to be a wonderful thing for a church, a ministry, a family, or even a growing Christian, because it changes everything when you understand what the ascension is. It'll change your worship. It'll change your prayer. It'll change your service. It'll change your life at your work or school. It'll change your relationships in your family. Last week, Jeremy taught that the transfiguration of Jesus was a mountaintop experience for us through the disciples and a turning point in Jesus' ministry. To us and the disciples, the transfiguration put the Trinity in a whole different light for us. Up to the time of the transfiguration, Jesus has exhibited to us the amazing life of a man, the amazing sinless life of a man. He was God incarnate. But the Trinity itself seemed kind of separate, right? There was Jesus coming to earth as man, but what about the rest of the Trinity? They kind of saw over it, but they weren't part of it physically in our eyes. So after the transfiguration, the disciples came down from the mountain with a new revelation of an approachable trinity. Jesus was proclaimed as the Son of God, the Messiah, at the transfiguration and confirmed as such. Then we had Gethsemane, the cross, and then the resurrection. And as Jeremy said, that kind of locked up the, the, the freedom from hell part of, of Jesus' reason for coming, paying for our sins through the crucifixion and resurrection. It is paid in full. It is finished. But that's not the end, because the ascension is about experiencing the Trinity, eternity in the kingdom now, 
and where we are in our life right now. So let's go to Acts, and uh, Dave, we're on slide three. At the beginning of Acts, the writer of Acts, who is Luke, says in the first book, which is the book of, he's referring to the book of Luke, he said, in the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all the things Jesus began to do and teach. Now that's fairly instructive, he said, began to do and teach. I mean, because if you look at Luke, he kind of covers everything, the conception, the birth, the temptation, the miracles, Jesus' calling, his teaching of the disciples, the transfiguration, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then he appears to the 40 disciples, or 40 people, appears for 40 days to 500 people. But he says all he began to teach, but then he covered all those things. Then it goes on in verse 2, until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Notice that's instructive too. He was speaking about the kingdom of God. He wasn't talking about making a decision for Christ. He wasn't talking about getting people saved. He wasn't talking about following the Ten Commandments. He was talking about the kingdom. And what he was trying to tell us was the kingdom is real. It's here. It's now. All these things we have to do, all these things are just part of us understanding who the, what the kingdom is. And it's about to get real. If you go to the next slide... If you look at the last words of gospel, um, and I, I don't know, this is my mistake, but I just have uh, the last words in the gospel of Luke uh, 2450. It's actually 2450 through 53. So if you want to turn there with me and see it in context. So he'd gone through all that, those teachings about what Jesus began to do in the book of Luke. And then in Luke 24, he's starting to wrap it up and ending the book. And, he, and so he, leads, he, he then tells them about the ascension. In Luke 24, 50 through 53, he says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. After his crucifixion, they were devastated, right? After his resurrection, they were confused. Mary thought he was a gardener. The two on their way to Emmaus thought, walked with him for seven miles and didn't know who he was. I kind of think it's comical. Jesus walked along with them and asked them what had been going on. And they said, don't you know all these things that have happened in the last few hours? And he goes, what things? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I could see Jesus almost mocking them. They had no clue. Thomas saw him standing there before him, resurrected, and still needed further proof. But at the ascension, it started to click for them. Everything Jesus said and did started to come together. Let's go back to Acts in the next slide and look at more detail about the ascension. Luke ends with the ascension. Acts 1 starts with the ascension. We're going to start in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, see, they wanted to get to the end, right? Because in, in all, up to this point, Jesus, when Jesus was teaching them before he was crucified, he was teaching them how tough it's going to get after he's, after he's come back, after he's resurrected, after he ascends. He says this, things are going to get tough. There's going to be wars and rumors of war. There's going to be destruction of the temple. He's referring both to the destruction of the temple and to him, his body, and we'll raise it up in three days. He talked about false teachers, chaos, 
He talked about racial disorder, family disruption. The disciples were wanting to fast forward to the new kingdom. They were saying, now this is a new kingdom. You know, all that stuff you said before, that's not gonna have to happen now, right? That, that's already kind of happened. We're just gonna move, go on to the good part, right? I mean, we kind of want to do that too, right? We want to skip what the Bible says is going to go on between now and the second coming and get right to the second coming. He said to them this, and starting in, going to verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power, and that's power to deal with those things we just talked about, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, Jesus brought them to what's happening now. Right now, this is what you need to know. The Holy Spirit's coming. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they're gazing into heaven, he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes. And then said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. See, the ascension is more than just another miracle story of Jesus. It requires kind of a perspective shift, not kind of, a major per perspective shift. It's core to Christian belief, um, going to slide six, it's in the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, which is, the, the you know, by many uh, denominations, considered to be, the and, and for mainstream Christianity, it's considered to be the essential elements of Christianity. This is what we believe, right? And uh, he came down from heaven, and it goes, and this is just the, the middle of it, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary, and became man. Some people know this by heart, my dad did. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. Then it says, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Then it says, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and, the, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, uh, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. So getting back, what does it mean Jesus ascended? Did he float up? Did he beam like, you know, Star Trek? By the way, if they could beam everywhere, why did they need that? Big spaceship, the Enterprise. Anyway, that's different. Um, so, um, you know, did he, did he have to go through the atmosphere to get away from us, to get out of the gravitational pull of the earth? I mean, he surely went up. They were looking up when he went. He went in a cloud. I mean, he surely went up. But there's much more to it than that. When the Bible says um, he went up, he's talking about he went into the heavens. And when the Bible talks about heavens and earth, it's very clear. Going to slide seven, Genesis one says, and this is the, just the first part of Genesis was, in the beginning, God created the heavens. The word for heavens, the Hebrew word for heavens is shemayim, shemayim, shemayim. Shemayim means the skies, okay? God created the heavens and the earth. The word for earth is eretz. Eretz is not, doesn't mean like we use the word earth. We use the word earth to describe the whole planet, 
okay, to describe, you know, heaven and earth. Earth is the planet, the globe, includes the oceans and everything in our atmosphere. What Eretz really means is just the land. If you look in verse 2, when it's describing the earth in this context, it's without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The globe was here, but the land wasn't yet. So it's saying the earth was, was without form, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So when the earth was formed, that was going to be... So throughout the Bible, the authors use the skies or the heavens to refer to the place where God lives, and they use the land to, to, um, to where people live, or humanity space. We'll call it God's space and humanity space for discussion today if I get there. The key here is to know that both spaces were included in the natural created world. We have to believe that although God is up there, he's also here because he's not limited by physical space. The most important thing to know about God's space is it includes earth because it's not, um, and God's not creating a supernatural place that's separate from us, okay? That's, that's where heaven gets viewed sometimes. I can't wait till I go up to heaven. I can't wait till I go, you know, spend time in the word or climb a mountain to get closer to God. It's not like that. Um, God's not limited by physical space, but it, what it's describing here is that the, transcend, the Trinity as a whole exists in a transcendent reality. They're in our space and God's space at the same time. They inhabit the whole thing because they're not limited. And remember, God's vision for heaven and earth is that God's space and humanity's space would someday be fully integrated. They would be one. That's the new heaven and the new earth. It's talking about the new, our space and God's space being merged in perfection and completeness. That's when Matthew 6, 9, 10, when, Lord, when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray, he says, on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for, that our space would be merged with God's space in perfect unity, and that's the ultimate goal. Can you imagine what that'll be like? Honestly, I think that's the value of understanding the ascension, is you can imagine what it'd be like, and you can encounter a glimpse of, glimpse of it Anytime you want. And that's what we're going to look at today, where God will show you his glory. We can also look at it historically. Um, if you study his word, you'll learn that the Garden of Eden is a, a glimpse of what, what that looks like. As the creation story begins, well, we, we can understand how the Garden of Eden was formed and how it was set up, because that'll help us understand that, that what it means by Jesus ascended. So we're still on slide seven. Um, let's go to beginning all and, and, and understand that all creation is God's. In the, begin, beginning, begin, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Then in the middle of it all, going to slide eight, in Genesis two, the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord made, every, um, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Going to slide nine, he placed man in the garden. Who he's talking about is Adam. Adam in Hebrew means human, and he placed Eve there. Eve means life in Hebrew. They were to re represent God, and they're made in his image. They're made to represent him in the garden, okay? If you look at the garden design in the next slide, there's an outer area called Eden, and the more inner area was called the garden. And then in the center of the garden was the most holy tree of life. 
Then there's this place in this people where God the creator and creation overlap that's called the garden. The people in this setting are called priests. And I'll talk, get to that de- definition of that in a minute. But Adam and Eve were called as priests to serve in the garden and to, to, um, to serve in a space where God, creator, and man, land over, man on land overlap. Eden was on a mountain where the skies and land meet. God is omnipresent. There's no limit to where he can go. He's not just up there away from here. He's in this transcendent reality that we just discussed. You're no closer to God when you're on a mountain than you are when you're in Harrisonville, Missouri. But Eden was placed on a hill so that Adam and Eve could experience going up into his full presence. Adam and Eve were called to work in the garden, work and keep the garden, and these are the duties of priests. They were to live and work in the sacred space. They were to rule creation on God's behalf. They would receive God's blessing and mediate them to all of creation. Their goal, and I was listening to a blog about this on the Bible Project, they talked about the sounds of creation, right? There's the ocean roar and the cries of man and the songs of birds. They were to take the sounds of creation and bring them to the Father as praises and then bring God's blessings back to creation by ascending Okay, And if you look at Psalms 104, we don't have time to go through any of them today, but Psalms 104 to 148 are the Psalms that emerge from this way of thinking, from this way of praising God, taking the sounds of creation, they're called the creation psalm. They take the song. And if you read through those, you'll start to see lyrics from some of the, the songs we even sang this morning. They take the sounds of creation, gather them up, and offer praise and worship to God. They were created to be God's royal priests. Adam and Eve were going up or ascending this cosmic mountain temple in order to be in God's presence. They were not floating up in the sky or necessarily even mountain climbing to 10,000 feet. But this is how the author literally emphasized God's transcendence. At the top of the mountain, they were united fully with God and integrated with his will. They entered this transcendent reality, actually. They ascended. Adam and Eve received God's creative word and his good life, And as God's representatives, they were tasked to go down from Eden to extend God's word to entire life and all of creation. They were supposed to bring his blessings into man's space. Notice their ascension does not remove them from man's space. They don't leave the earth, nor does go or leave the land, nor does their going down to the rest of the world remove them from God's divine realm. Could we say they're ascending and descending at the same time, living in the way and the will of God here on earth as it is in heaven. But as we all know, they weren't satisfied with being in God's image. They wanted to be God's, and so we have the fall. Humanity gave up their priestly role, and the implications of that are a whole nother sermon, and I'm not gonna get into it today, but you've been taught on those before. But remember, we're created to be priests. If you go to slide 11, and this is repeated throughout Scripture. Revelations 5.10 says, And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. A kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This is our duty. This is our calling. But this is all what we are made to do. Going to slide 12, 1 Peter looks at that. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, man's space, into his marvelous light, 
God's space. But with sin in this world, it's impossible for us to enter into God's presence on our own merits or even, even without our own merits. So since the fall, God's plans has been for us to regain access and assume our rightful royal priesthood position and authority. So God starts to introduce his plan. This isn't on your screen, but he describes in Genesis 3, 14, that a descendant of Adam and Eve will, um, and in Genesis 3, 14, I'll give you a chance to find it. It's God talking to the serpent after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned. God's talking to the serpent, and he says, I, um, he vows to them, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Other versions say crush your head. And you shall bruise, and the other versions say strike his heel. So Jesus is going to crush the, 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 the cause of evil, the cause of sin, but he's going to get hurt in the process, right? And you all know that story. So as the plan unfolds, we see we have the fall and rise of several priests, earthly priests, representatives that are given access to God's space on man's behalf until we correct this sin problem, right? Abraham, then Moses, they ascend, they go into God's space, and man's, and, and, um, man's space, uh, they go into God's space, and then they merge, uh, <laughs> they go to where God's space and man's space merges, and, 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 and exist in this transcendent reality, receive God's instruction, and then they're changed by it, and they carry their blessings back into man's space. Later in Leviticus, um, later in Leviticus, this is the time of the tent tabernacle when they had the tabernacle that they traveled with that they placed the Ark and the Covenant in the center of. We read about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on this day, the high priest would make a special annual sacrifice to cover the sins of Israel's entire community, which most importantly also made a way for the people to live in God's presence. Notice the progression. First, a significant sacrifice. Second, an ascension. This is the way it had to be in the face of the sin. The sin had to be atoned for before anybody could go into God's presence. Interestingly, the atonement is only one day a year when the high priest would symbolically ascend on the people's behalf to meet with God. Even designated priests could not enter God's presence without making a sacrifice. Moses made a sacrifice before he ascended on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and he actually did it once before that. Exodus 24, 5 through 8, if you're taking notes. And the high priest likewise made a sacrifice before his ascension, Leviticus 16, 15. Abraham, then Moses, then the high priest, they were exclusively to ascend in the presence of God so that they might talk and pray to God on behalf of the people, represent God to the people, and the people to God. The high priest symbolically ascends to Conosmos by going past the veil in the tabernacle that divides human space from God's space. And then he goes up into the transcendent presence of God, as the video said before I spoke this morning. The high priest didn't just go up and down, he had duties. Like Adam and Eve, he was to work and keep the temple. And by the way, this is interesting, slide 13. The Hebrew word for work is abodah. Another meaning of the word abodah is worship. So work equals worship in, in this sense. Mediate, and then you're supposed to, so they're supposed to work and worship, um, mediate God's blessing, 
bring God, blessings from God's space down to man's space, into man's space, intercede for all creation, and then represent God to creation and creation to God. So we see these first humans, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, and then the priests all engaging this kind of ascending up into the presence of God, doing priestly stuff. But what about the average person? What about the average Israelite? Well, as we start to look at David, they start to call the people of the Israelites people of ascension. And this is because not long after he became king, David goes to the high hills in the center of Israel's tribes and establishes a capital city called Jerusalem, otherwise known as Zion, the city of David, the city on a hill. Um, 2 Samuel 6 describes that. Here the temple will be constructed and modeled after the Garden of Eden, filled with imagery, gold, and flowers, every image pointing back to the mountain garden temple of Eden. Going to slide 14 shows the, the, the original design of the temple. So the temple is, that look familiar, by the way? So the temple is symbolic and functional. It's a model pointing to the new heaven and new earth, a place permeated with God's presence where humanity would once again live in communion with this way of life and his will for all creation. The temple acts as a symbol of Israel's and all of humanity's purpose or high calling to spread God's presence throughout the world and bring all the families of the earth. Genesis 12, one through three. See, that was the purpose of Eden, of Adam and Eve in Eden too. They weren't supposed to keep God's presence in Eden. They weren't supposed to keep it there at the holy tree of life and around it. They were supposed to spread it to all of creation. They were supposed to Edenize the entire of, entirety of creation. Hence the temple. The purpose is not to keep God in the temple. The purpose is that his people will receive his blessing, receive his presence, and transcend it to, the, to their, all of their creation. Like Eden, it had an outer court. The outer courts where Jesus cleansed the temple when he turned the tables over. It's as far as Gentiles could go. They couldn't go beyond the outer court. The inner court was for Israelites where their sacrifices were made. And we talked about the sacrifice and its the, 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 the ritual of sacrifice and how it relates to how we use our gifts and talents that were given to us. We did that last time I spoke. I hope some of you remember. I do, because I had to put it together, I guess. But like Eden had outer court, and the sacrifice were made in inner court. Then behind the veil was the holy of holies, where God's blessing and good life were. It's God's space, but only the high priest could go in there, and only after making a sacrifice. If we go to slide 15, we read the last part of Solomon's prayer of dedication. Um, by the way, 1 Kings was, was, they, uh, contains a lot of prophetic prophecy in it. Some, people, some scholars even think Jeremiah actually wrote 1 Kings. 1 Kings 8, 29 through 30, and I'm actually going to start in verse 27, which is not on your screen. He, and this is Solomon praying at the dedication of the temple. And it kind of unveils the prophecy that told what the temple would be. But, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and earth, the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house. Then he prays that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, this place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. This place, this place, this place is in your presence that's what he's praying about. He's not praying about the building. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. 
So we here see here the temple, God's space, and the work of priests really hadn't changed, right? They're supposed to work and keep the temple, worship. They're supposed to sacrifice and then ascend into God's full presence. And then they're supposed to mediate God's blessing into man's space and intercede for all of creation. And notice how when you read the scriptures, how every time the Israelites traveled to Jerusalem for the festivals, and when they're going to sacrifice in the temple or worship, the biblical authors always write that the people are going up or ascending to Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem. We're going up to Zion. We're marching up to Zion. Jerusalem is elevation of about 2,500 feet above sea level. Bethlehem's about the same. It's a city on a hill. Um, do you know that if you drive from here to Garden City, Kansas, you gain more uh, altitude than if you go from Garden City, Kansas to Denver? That has really nothing to do with this, but I want to share one irrefutable fact early on to get my credibility up. So anyway, um, but what happened is that they were ascending. I argue the same way, don't I, Al? <laughs> but, uh, um, but what is happening here is they were not necessarily rock climbing, right? They're not climbing a mountain per se. I mean, all God's places in the Bible are, are, are elevated to a sense for, 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 I think, metaphorical purposes maybe or just to emphasize. But what is emphasized here is they're ascending, they're getting closer to God. Regardless of whether or not the people were actually climbing an elevation or heading north, they always use the geographical description of going up. And here's the cool part about it is they joined in together and worship as they ascend in the presence of God. If you go to slide 16, there's, there's about 15 psalms, 120 through 134. Each of these psalms starts with this superscript, this Hebrew superscript. It's Sir Ham Ma'alot, Sir Hamalalot. What Sir Hamalalot means is songs of ascent. Psalm 120 through 134 each of these um, is the songs of Psalms of Ascent. I don't have them all up here, just a few. Psalm 120 excerpts from a few. Psalm 121, one, slide 17 now, David. I lift up my eyes to the hill. From where does my, from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. And the mountains, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. Psalm 133, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And it goes on to describe that as a sacrifice, as a fragrant blessing to God when, his brothers, dwell, when brothers dwell in unity. Psalm 132, 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. Any of those sound like our, our worship songs that we share sometimes? They're not songs about rock climbing. They're not songs about, they're songs about God's ascending, God's people ascending from this world of chaos and sin, entering into the full presence of God, then descending back into man's space to mediate those blessings. They're celebrating those mess, blessings as they go up and as they come down. But remember, to enter into God's full presence, you had to be a high priest. A high priest had to do it on their behalf. And you know what high priests did. They became extremely corrupt. It was high priests that arranged the torture and crucifixion of Jesus. Caiaphas, the main culprit, but not the only one. So God's plan was to bring the ultimate high priest. 
While Jesus walked this earth, he filled the priestly role. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is not on your screen, so I'll give you a second to find it. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. While Jesus walked on this earth, he fulfilled a priestly role. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, and this one distinguishes him from the other high priest, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need, grace and help to help in the time of need. Jesus becomes the ultimate high priest. Think about it. He often went off by himself to pray, and he ascended in prayer. Often it was on a mountain. He interceded on behalf of his people. That's what the whole book of John is. A lot of book of John is Jesus' prayers for his disciples and for us. He mediated God's blessings. That's what the miracles are. Jesus mediating God's blessings to earth, to man's space. Who can deny a sacrifice that he made? Jeremy shared the transfiguration, but from the transfiguring forward, Gethsemane, the cross, the resurrection, the disciples and our perspective totally changes. We see Jesus in the glorified state, and he's not just our example. Now he's our Messiah, the Son of God. About a year later, after the resurrection, we read that Jesus travels up to Jerusalem where he's put on, a, uh, put on trial, Mark 10, 33. After being condemned to death, Jesus goes up to Golgotha where he's lifted up on a cross. John three fourteen says, as uh, Jesus speaking, says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 8, 28, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me in his presence. John 12, 32, and if I am lifted up from earth, I will draw all men to myself. And then they crucified him. Luke 24, 7 says, and three days later, Jesus is raised up from the dead. The biblical authors are saying something with all this up language. More on that shortly. But then at that point, his cross is the door by which every member of the human race can enter into the life of God. By his resurrection, he has the right to give eternal life to anyone and does. Because of the crucifixion, we no longer need a priest, an intermediate, to enter the presence of God. The Holy of Holies. The temple veil is torn. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. That physically wasn't stopping God from getting to us. It wasn't necessary. It was symbolic for us and for the high priest. I love the way that scene plays out in uh, um, The Passion of the Christ, when that temple veil torns and the high priest is sitting there crying and scared and tremoring, right? Because that's what happens. The temple veil tours to tails, the temple veil tears for our purpose, for our benefit. He doesn't say, I am finished. He says, it is finished. Your sins are paid in full. He doesn't say, you are finished. It says, it is finished. You no longer need sacrifices or mediators. Your sin is paid once and for all. Now God looks upon you as righteous. 
and without sin. Then 40 days later, after the resurrection, the scene where Jesus is lifted up and the clouds receive him. In slide 18, we start to look at when the way Luke describes this scene is very similar to the prophecies in book of Daniel, first of all, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Daniel says this, I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, what we're looking at here, what Daniel was seeing was the enthronement of the Son of Man. That's been led up to by all the events that we've been talking about, but it's completed at the ascension. The enthronement of the Son of Man is achieved at the ascension. They see him, and that's what Daniel's describing, the ascension. And then uh, slide nine, the next slide, we look at um, Isaiah's prophecy, and this is hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, he was pierced for our transgressions. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Another worship song. As, we may, many, were, uh, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, he made the sacrifice, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Wouldn't that be nice? From that which he has not been told, since, um, for that which has not been told, they see, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. See, Luke intentionally chooses these images because he caused the readers to link these two ideas, the enthronement of the Son of Man and the ascension. Jesus' transfiguration, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension are all part of the enthronement in the heavenly temple. Because Jesus reigns as the, son, as the God-man, the cosmic priest, he reigns over and fulfills Eden, the place where heaven and earth are one and humans and God are united. His ascension means this, our Lord entered heaven and keeps the door open for us. The ascension is complete fulfillment of the transfiguration. Our Lord returned to his original glory after having walked this earth as a man much like us. He was tempted, hurt, ridiculed, but without sin. There is now freedom of access for everyone to the very throne of God because of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ deliberately limited his omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience to show us the way. But now they are in his absolute full power. He has access to all those since eternity. Jesus Christ now has all the power at the throne of God. From his ascension forward, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? And the main point of today is this. Because of the ascension and the arrival of the Holy Spirit... By the way, why could not the Holy Spirit come till Jesus ascended? I mean, Jesus actually said that. The Holy Spirit cannot come unless I ascend, right? What, unless I go away, the Holy Spirit... Why is that? I have no idea, but I think you should ask Jeremy as soon as he gets back. So. <laughs> but... At, at the ascension, the Holy Spirit comes, 
And you saw, you know, you read the change in the disciples when that happens, when the apostles, when that happens. Um, but the Holy Spirit resides in our inner being, inner being immediately upon salvation after the ascension. We're fully equipped to ascend from this messed up world into his presence now. And as we learned earlier, since we are priests, we are priests now. The Holy Spirit, we become priests and we ascend into his presence because the sacrifice has already been made. We don't have to make a sacrifice to move into God's presence. We can, when we're still called to work and keep, to worship, to sacrifice, to bring forth our talents. We talked about that during the parable of the talents. We're to receive his blessing and good life and then bring his blessings to the end of the earth. And then we're supposed to intercede for all mankind and creation. Here's another question. Where's the temple now? Is this building our temple? Is this where the presence of God is? Yeah, it's here, but looking at slide 20, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Remember, this is Paul writing, and Paul only knew the ascended Christ. Paul met Jesus Christ after he'd already ascended, right? So he says, I mean, he may have met him before, but it's not documented. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And later on the next slide, 1 Corinthians 6.19 or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have had from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Bible's clear. With Jesus in our hearts and the Holy Spirit's power, the Holy of Holies, the fullness of God's presence, God's blessing and good life are within us. We, we are priests, as we just learned, but we're also the temple. We're the place where God's presence and man's space overlap. We're the people and the place where that happens. Going to slide 22, Jesus said, In that day, when the Holy Spirit comes, when he's ascended, you will ask in my name, for the Father himself loves you. Um, paraphrasing. John 16, 26 and 27. In that day you'll ask in my name, that is in my nature, not you'll use my name as some magic word. You'll be so intimate with me that you will be one with me. That day is not a day for the next life, but a day meant for here and now. For the Father himself loves you. It doesn't say will love you. It doesn't say used to love you. It says loves you. The Father's love is evidence that our union with Jesus is complete and absolute right now. Our Lord does not mean that our lives will be free from external difficulties and certainties, amen? But that he, as, as he knew the Father's heart and mind, we too also can be lifted by him into the heavenly places through the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that he can review, reveal the teachings of God to us. That day is a day of peace and untroubled relationship between you and God, his saints, And Jesus, just as Jesus stood unblemished and pure, in spite of the Isaiah description of his physical description uh, before that, he stood unblemished and pure in the presence of his Father. We too, by the mighty power and effectiveness of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, can be lifted into that relationship where he looks upon us that way. And slide 23 says that they may be one just as we are one as Jesus prayed for us in John 17, 22. Jeremy asked last week if we truly expected to meet the Lord, to be in his presence by entering the Holy Holies, how would that change things? 
And this, dear saints, is also not the end. This experience is still clouded by the surging sin of a fallen world. Amen? But we, like Peter and the others, and we, like Peter and the others, want to stay on the mountain of transfiguration and, and ignore it all and stay above it all. But 1 Corinthians 12.2 says this, and this is not on your screen, 1 Corinthians 12.2, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I know I shall know fully. Even as I have been fully known. And then Jesus revealed to John, as documented in Revelations, that this dim mirror view we have of God's presence that is clouded by sin now won't be around for long. Jesus revealed in Revelations 21 and 22. We'll look at slide 22 on the next slide. He's describing the new heaven and earth and how it's going to be the complete, clear view of what God intended in the Garden of Eden. Revelations 22 says, Then the angel showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on the other side of the river, the tree of life. He's restoring the garden temple with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. Month, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything to be accursed or to dim our view, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and, this servants, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I'd like the worship team to come up, and uh, maybe they could help hold me up here. <laughs> so how does the reality of the ascension change our prayer life? When we enter the Holy of Holies in our inner soul, we don't even have to speak. Maybe we can't. Romans eight twenty six says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as, for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Why am I standing outside the Holy of Holies waiting for God to throw blessings down to me, asking him to send stuff down to me? How does this change our worship? We can sing songs of ascent as we enter in together. We can link creation to the, uh, link the sounds of creation and, and transform them into praises of God. We can ascend any time, uh, and worship can pour out of us like it will be in the new heaven and new earth. Why am I standing out the holy of, outside the Holy of Holies evaluating the song choices? Why am I singing the people around me are trying to keep them from hearing how I murder the notes? That's why I don't sing when I have the mic on, just in case they leave it on as a cruel joke or something. Why do I expect worship team to do it for me? When we leave here, that is to send back into man's space. Do we radiate? Is it something, is it evident that something's different to those we work with, those we serve and those we work for, those we live next to? Is the reality of the ascension spilling over into the workplace through me? Or am I just going through the, going through the motions, putting in my time? How does this change our life in this community we call HCC? Are we a community that enters the holies of holies together in this wonderful place 
where the sinful shouts of the world are at least muffled for a bit? Are we ascending together in worship, prayer, and proclaiming his word? Is there a chance the people that we live here can get caught up in it? Well, I'm at times just playing church, trying to do enough good things to be sensible for God and keep my hopes from running. How does this change my marriage? Can she see my radiance? Feel the love that I'm mediating from the throne of God? Can she tell I've been interceding for her? Why do I catch myself just going through motion? How does this change the way we relate to our kids, our in-laws and grandkids? Do we relate to them in a way that mediates the blessings we have received? Why are we waiting for them to blank before his blessing? before his blessings pour through us to them. You fill in your own blank. As I wrap up, I want to share one more major point. Jeremy said narrow it down to three, to one major point, and I think I've only got three, so I'm doing good. As I wrap up, I have to pass something that may be obvious to you, but God has finally gotten something through my head after 61 years. Yes, 61, don't make an issue of it. With the opportunity to stand in the pulpit once in a while, being a part of Lakeside Camp, sharing messages, raising kids and grandkids, being a husband, we can start to think that we're pretty important for this Holy Spirit thing. We, we can start to think we can take charge of the walk of our, love, of our loved ones. We are not called to be amateur Holy Spirits to push them into God's presence. We're called to submit to the Holy Spirit, to enter in God's space ourselves, it is clear we're not supposed to be telling God what to do with other people's lives. We're supposed to enter into his presence and see what he has for us, the blessings he has for us to share. The Holy Spirit will usher our loved ones into the Holy of Holies. He will make them priests and build up the temple within them. Jesus said in John 6, God draws them to himself. It's not up to us. John 12, he says, I will draw all men to myself when I am lifted up. What we are supposed to do is we're supposed to work and keep. We're supposed to worship. We're supposed to sacrifice, bring forth our talents. We're supposed to intercede for our loved ones and all of creation. Give voice of praise to the, the sounds around us. We're supposed to receive his blessings and good life and then come to them as a river gushing with his blessings. 